Thus, two men proudly clothed and equipped in the manner of the hunter, with few of the skills needed to survive in the backwoods, set out into unknown and dangerous territory in November 1818, with only a general idea of the direction they should travel. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with historian and geographer Andrew J. Milson about his book, Arkansas Travelers, Geographies of Exploration and Perception, 1804 to 1834, and one explorer in particular, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. It's interesting that Schoolcraft ends up in a book about Arkansas travelers, because if he had pursued his journey in the way that he intended, he never would have come into Arkansas. A Greenhorn in the Ozarks, and author Andrew J. Milson on Arts and Letters. Today on Arts and Letters, we'll be talking with historian and geographer Andrew J. Milson about his book, Arkansas Travelers, Geographies of Exploration and Perception, 1804 to 1834, published by the University of Arkansas Press, and one explorer in particular, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. A weary traveler on horseback arrives at a ragged cabin in the backwoods of Arkansas, just as the sun is setting. He approaches a scruffy man playing a fiddle near the doorway of the hovel and asks for lodging for the night. The Arkansas continues to fiddle. A disheveled woman eyes the traveler from the threshold as children play recklessly in the background and a dog barks nervously. Once I was a traveler in Arkansas, I came upon a farmer chewing on a straw. He fiddled and he whittled all the left long day. He saw me coming down the road and he began to say, Where you coming from, stranger? The dialogue begins. Hello, stranger. Hello, yourself. Can you give me a night's lodging? No room, stranger. Can you make room? No, sir, it might rain. But what if it does rain? There's only one dry spot in this house, and me and Sal sleeps on that. The Arkansas continues to play a tune on the fiddle. Why don't you put a roof on the house? When it's dry, I don't want a roof. When it's wet, I can't. The fiddling continues. Which is the way to the Red River Crossing? I've lived here all 20 years and never noted to have a crossing. Once again, the Arkansas scratches out the same tune on the fiddle. What are you playing that tune over so often for? Only heard it yesterday, afraid I'll forget it. Why don't you play the second part of it? I knowed that tune ten years, and it ain't got no second part. Pass it here. The Arkansas hands the fiddle to the traveler, who tunes it, and then skillfully launches into a new part of the tune. The Arkansas leaps off his whiskey barrel and begins to dance. The unkempt woman smiles, and the dog wags his tail. As the traveler finishes the tune, the Arkansas exclaims, Walk in, stranger. Tie up your horse side of old ball. Give him ten ears of corn. Pull out the demijohn and drink it all. Stay as long as you please. If it rains, sleep on the dry spot. Andrew J. Milson, professor, geographer, historian, welcome. Thank you very much for having me. So this book, Arkansas Travelers, Geographies of Exploration and Perception, 1804 to 1834, must have taken some time. It did. <laughs> I spent about five years or so thinking and working on this, on this project. And you began the introduction with a little bit from the Arkansas Traveler narrative or one of the narratives, which one did you use here? Because there are so many different Arkansas Traveler tales, right? In this one, you uh, 
you begin with dialogue. There's a variety of published versions of the Arkansas Traveler, and the one that I use in the beginning of the book is um, called On the Track of the Arkansas Traveler. And so it's uh, one version of the dialogue between the two travelers. I know that your ancestors settled in Arkansas in the 1820s. Did that help pique some of your interest into the exploration of Arkansas and its explorers in this book? It did. So the uh, history for me is that my dad's side of the family uh, have third and fourth great-grandparents who came to southwest Arkansas in the 1820s. And they are the kinds of ancestors that don't have a lot of (laughs) written records and and so forth associated with them. Uh, And so they're a bit of a genealogical mystery for my family. And so I thought, well, I can't necessarily find out exactly what was going on for my family, but I can read about eyewitness accounts at that time and, and try to get an understanding for what Arkansas was like. What I found so interesting about this, and I, you know, I've read a lot of of histories, but what's really neat about this is the way you conceive of geography. In this case, you're kind of using it as an analytical tool and a methodology. That's right. And I see geography very much as a lens through which we can view the world. And both history and geography suffer from stereotypes about what the fields are about. History tends to be viewed as the field that is about dates and names and so forth. Geography tends to be viewed as the the field that's about memorizing capitals and and key exports. And uh, of course, those of us who study either one of those disciplines know they're they're much more deep than that. Okay, so let's begin with Schoolcraft, Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. And he he made this journey in 1818 and 1819. Could you tell us just a little bit about his, his biography? So Schoolcraft was born in New York. He was about a third generation New Yorker. And uh, his father was in the glassmaking business. And as a young man in his early 20s, his father attempted to help him get established in this glassmaking business, even helped him establish a factory in Vermont. This was not the best time to be a young 20-year-old attempting to get your start in business in terms of the economy of the United States. Mm -hmm. There were financial panics. And so he, by the time he was 24 or so, was bankrupt. He had tried to run two factories, right? One in Vermont, the other in New Hampshire. Correct. So he'd run two factories. Both of them had failed Mm. fairly quickly. Father must not have been so proud of him. (laughs) This must have been very difficult for a young man. You're 23 or so. Right. Your dad's tried to get you started. You fail miserably. (laughs) Twice. Twice. You go bankrupt. You essentially have nothing left but the clothes on your back. This is the exact sort of situation that led a lot of young men of Schoolcraft's generation to strike out to the West, seek out something new, try something different. And that's what brought him to Missouri. So Schoolcraft is in this situation where he's he's bankrupt, he's in his early 20s, he's failed at his father's businesses, and decides to strike out for Missouri, and he learns that his lawyer from his bankruptcy hearing and his son are going to Missouri and decides to tag along, essentially, and look for something new. So his experience in the glass business led him to think about mineralogy and so forth. Southeast Missouri had been a lead mining district for decades. This was nothing particularly new. The French and Spanish had both been involved in lead mining. Now that this was American territory, Americans were attempting to exploit the mines of Southeast Missouri. (laughs) 
the area that is now around present day Springfield was still in the region of the Osage territory, but there was an understanding that there were unworked mines. There were unworked deposits in this area further to the west in Missouri. When Schoolcraft arrived in Missouri, he encountered another 25-year-old named Stephen F. Austin. And as a Texan, that's an important name for us in in Texas. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, But (laughs) Stephen F. Austin's father was Moses Austin. And Moses Austin had been involved in lead mining in Virginia. He came and established mines, was very successful in southeast Missouri. And so Schoolcraft spent some time studying the mining operations in southeast Missouri. He learned about some of these opportunities further to the west. And it's not clear exactly how this trip got started, but it's understood that Moses Austin probably funded Schoolcraft to do a reconnaissance trip out to the west. He had this restless 25-year-old hanging around his house and leaving mineral deposits behind. And so you can imagine Moses saying, sure, I'll, I'll give you a little bit of support to head out and, and check out some of the operations out here. Thus, two men proudly clothed and equipped in the manner of the hunter with few of the skills needed to survive in the backwoods, set out into unknown and dangerous territory in November 1818, with only a general idea of the direction they should travel. The 25-year-old New Yorker, who had failed in the New England glassmaking business, attempted to swallow his fear after the first day of the journey. We turned to pursue our way with such feelings as many travelers have experienced on turning their backs upon the comforts and endearments of life to encounter fatigue, hard fare, and danger. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and you're listening to Arts and Letters. We're talking with writer Andrew J. Milson about his book, Arkansas Travelers, Geographies of Exploration and Perception, 1804, to 1834. We'll be back in a moment. Let's return to our conversation with Andrew J. Melson about his book, Arkansas Travelers, Geographies of Exploration and Perception, 1804 to 1834. We might imagine this young man, Henry Rose Schoolcraft, has very little experience, it even seems, in hiking or camping or doing anything in the wilderness. Yet, he goes out and you call the chapter a greenhorn in the Ozarks, and it's pretty evident that he was a greenhorn. Could you tell us how unprepared he was? It's very amazing that he took this trip on his own like this. He had one one companion who was Levi Pettibone, and neither one of them had a lot of experience with backwoods travel. Unfortunately, he was not able to get any of the experienced men in the area of southeast Missouri to go with him. It's not clear why. Imagine that nobody else was interested in heading off into Osage territory, risking their lives. Maybe Schoolcraft had some sort of personality issue that uh, made people say, I don't really want to spend a lot of time with this guy. So it's very difficult to know Exactly. But reading between the lines, we can see he attempted to get help. He attempted to find other people to guide him. 
nobody would agree to do it. So he decided to go off on his own. With his friend. With his friend. Mm -hmm. They didn't know how to hobble a horse. They didn't know how to boil a pot of coffee. They didn't know how to hunt. They didn't know how to cook meat in the backcountry. And so they were given a small supply of of bread and, and so forth. And they took off on this adventure. It's the kind of thing that only a 25-year-old with nothing else to lose would do. Nevertheless, Henry admired the beautiful prospect of Potosi as he and Levi departed over the hills to the southwest on November 6th, 1818. After spending the night in an uninhabited cabin, the second day of their journey began with the inconvenience of searching for the horse they had not hobbled properly the night before. Once the horse was located and packed, Henry and Levi continued the journey toward the west-southwest for 14 more miles. Schoolcraft noted, The current inhabitants of this territory engaged in both hunting and farming but he expected agriculture to take hold in the future. Golden sunrise over the hill The days are getting long Flash of crimson in the red bud tree The grass is turning green On a hill, a place to call our own And little lows are mountain home Starlight in a cage made of fireflies. Luna moth lands on a window pane, and in the dawn light it flies away. On a hill, a place to call our own, a little Ozark. So the first white family that he encounters uh, after he leaves Potosi is the Roberts family, Mr. and Mrs. Roberts. I've tried to nail down exactly who this family might have been. And it's possible that it was a man named Lonzo Robert. And so he was probably a Frenchman who had settled just to the west of Potosi. This was an area where there were also uh, there was a Delaware village, there was a Shawnee village, so there were indigenous peoples very close by. And if we wanted to, we could live anywhere else. Take all the memories and place them all on a shelf. But it's been good to me, and it's been good to you, a port swing. Just for two, a carousel of dragonflies and passion fruit vines, a hush shade of cedar trees swaying in a line, a symphony of sunlight and a place to pass the time. On a hill, a place to call our own, and little Ozark Mountain home. And it's been good to me, and little Ozark Mountain home. And it's been good to you, and little Ozark Mountain home. Mrs. Roberts is very interesting because she explains to these two men that none of what you have is appropriate for this journey. Their clothing is inappropriate. Their guns will not work for the kind of hunting they need to do. She tries to tell them exactly where they need to go. And you can imagine these two 19th century men sort of sticking their noses up about taking advice from a woman. Mr. Roberts agrees to help them out because he's probably heading out on a hunt anyway. And somewhere along the way decides that he will catch up with them later. And they don't see him again. <laughs> he says, I'm going to go hunting. That's right. After, all, after about, what, two days with these guys, he just disappears. So you can imagine Mr. <laughs> Roberts saying, uh, I'll, I'll see you guys later. I'll, I'll catch up with you later. And somewhere along the way... Uh, you know, decides that he probably just doesn't want to have anything to do with this uh, with this Greenhorn expedition. 
In addition to taking in the beautiful scenery, the primary purpose for visiting this area was to explore the caves. During the War of 1812, William Henry Ashley manufactured gunpowder in Potosi and mined saltpeter from a cave in this area. Schoolcraft observed that the mining works were idle at this time. Large quantities of crude saltpeter were lying in the forward part of the cave. Given the volatility of this substance, several miners have been killed in explosions in recent years. It is fortunate that the journey and their lives did not end when Henry and Levi foolishly built a fire in the cave. Fortunately, the potassium nitrate surrounding them did not explode, and Henry and Levi survived to explore seven different caves, examine the stalactites and stalagmites, and collect samples of the saltpeter. So they're sitting in the cave, caught up in spiritual reflection, too. We did not return from our examination without feeling impressions in regard to our own origin, nature, and end. Yeah, so they are uh, they're having a little spiritual moment here. I'm wondering if they're thinking about, maybe we should abandon this, <laughs> or we're going to meet our maker soon. Let's continue our journey with historian and geographer Andrew J. Milson. As he talks about his book, Arkansas Travelers, Geographies of Exploration and Perception, 1804 to 1834. How, as we listen to these narratives that you go through in particular and these explorers' adventures, can we contextualize and I'm just going to put it in quotes, a political incorrectness that is throughout these narratives with respect to indigenous people. I think what's really helpful about these narratives from 200 years ago is that they really reveal to us the diversity, not only among white people, but among the native peoples that are being encountered. The Osages resisted white encroachment and they resisted other tribal encroachment on their lands. So they were understandably and suitably feared by the white settlers in the area. There were examples of the Osages very violently responding to Mm -hmm. any sort of trespass on their territory. The Cherokee, on the other hand, and the Quapaw in particular, had a much more peaceful sort of interaction. The Quapaw had a long history with French settlers in the the Arkansas Delta region really had become a very accommodative kind of society. The Cherokee were very much trying to emulate the settled agricultural approaches of the American Europeans. So the difference between civilization and savagery, we talk about it as a dualism, Mm -hmm. but it's really a spectrum. And I think the people at this time are revealing to us that even they understood it to be a spectrum. They recognized the differences between the Osages and the Cherokees and the Quapaw. So they resume their journey on November 15, 1818, and they travel throughout the region by foot. They learn a little bit about hunting, and they, they become a little disoriented. What happens during this part of the journey? After they leave the caves, they begin to get lost. Wind up my watch and golden chain. Wind up my watch and golden chain. Wind up my watch and golden chain. But I've got to be on time. I've got to make my train. I haven't been here long. But now it's that time They have misinterpreted which river system they're in. They thought they were further west than they were. They are finding that it's very difficult to travel close to a river. There's a lot of overgrown greenery that they're having to cut through, briars. The horse gets mired. So they decide we will travel up on a higher ridge. The trouble with traveling on a higher ridge is that uh, you don't have access to the water. And if you miss me when I 
They have very little food. They can't kill anything to eat. And you get a sense right here that Henry's pretty concerned. I think it begins to dawn on him at some point after they've uh, become lost, they've had trouble locating water. And now as they're running to try to shoot a couple of bears that they see, his companion Levi sprains his ankle. And if you need to remember me some way, Said if you need to remember me some way Well, if you find the need to remember me some way You can spill a little wine where I'm singing here today I haven't been here long But now it's that time for moving on The men decided to give the bears battle. After tying their horse to a sapling and loading their guns, they approached their prey. The bears quickly spotted Henry and Levi and began to climb down from the trees. Henry and Levi decided to charge toward the bears in a clumsy attempt to keep them in place. But while running across the rugged ground, Levi sprained his ankle and fell. As the last of the bears hopped to the ground, Henry fired his gun from 50 yards away and missed. The bears loped away over a ridge and into a field of tall grass. Henry began to worry. What if Levi's condition worsened? Was his life in danger? And I've got just one more thought before I go. Said I've got one more thought before I go. Well, I've got one more thought right before I go. Well, I just want you to know I'll think about you down the road. I haven't been here long. But now it's that time for moving on. All they had packed for medicine was a box of Lee's pills and some healing salve. The pills were for indigestion or nausea, and the salve was for scratches and cuts. Neither would do much for the pain of an ankle injury or worse. Henry prepared a warm saltwater bath for Levi's ankle, wrapped it in flannel and buffalo skin, and assembled a bed of skins and grass. Henry's anxiety grew as he began to gauge their circumstances. They were without sufficient medicine. They were not sure of their location. They did not know if there were other people in the vicinity. There was not enough forage for the horse nearby. The wood close to the camp would not last very long. And what about food? I haven't been here long, but now it's that time moving on. Oh, it's coming, yeah, now it's that time moving on. Ah. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. And you're listening to Hearts and Letters. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jay Bradley Minnick, and this is Arts and Letters. We're talking with historian and geographer Andrew J. Milson about his book, Arkansas Travelers, Geographies of Exploration and Perception, 1804 to 1834. One of the things that we can do when we're looking at geographical landscapes is think in terms of culture and environment. And so we can think of those as being layers. Uh, one thing we want to avoid doing, of course, is separating those two too much. But both culture and environment are important as we're thinking about the layers of geography. And so as travelers are moving through space, they're examining the physical environment, the landforms, the soils, the botanical features, the game. Uh, they're also examining the and interpreting the cultural attributes of that landscape. And so they're making judgments about the people that they encounter. Within culture, of course, we have degrees of class. We have extreme poverty. We have wealth in Arkansas at this point in time. We have indigenous peoples. We have 
a legacy of a French society, particularly in the Arkansas Delta near the Mississippi. We have the American military at Fort Smith. Mm-hmm. We have an Ozark backcountry <laughs> with people that have come from uh, different parts of the Upland South. And we have both a hunting society and an emerging agricultural society. So all of those layers, if we think geographically, we can think about how we could map all of those different layers and then begin to look at the intersections between those layers. The next day, Henry noted that the depth of the river could be deceiving. The water is so clear, white, and transparent that the stones and the pebbles at its bottom, at the depth of eight or ten feet, are reflected through it with the most perfect accuracy as to color, size, and position, and at the same time appear as if within two or three feet of the surface of the water. This illusion proved nearly disastrous when Henry, Levi, and their horse attempted to ford the river at one point. The horse stepped into the stream, expecting to land his hoof on the pebbles below, when he suddenly plunged into the cold water. He swam to safety, but their supplies were soaked. It was near the end of the day, so the men set up camp and attempted to save any supplies that had not been ruined by the plunge into the illusory river. Tea, meal, salt, sugar, skins, blankets, clothes were soaked. You can almost feel the desperation, the fear, the sense among these young men that, okay, this just got real. We are running out of things to eat. A glimmer of hope emerged when Henry discovered three pumpkins growing on a vine at an abandoned camp. One had been partially eaten by a wild animal, so Henry fed the remainder to his horse. The other two, he returned triumphantly to their camp, where Levi congratulated him on his bounty. The men dined that evening on a soup of pumpkin, water, and salt. Henry quipped, Some epicures would not have relished the entertainment. Nevertheless, we enjoyed a most hearty and social repast. The pumpkin soup proved to be the last positive note in what was otherwise a very dismal period of the journey. Henry Rowe Schoolcraft's intellectually adept. He's no dummy in terms of being able to write about his journey and and do, I think, some pretty astute observation. What was he finding with respect to the people of the Ozarks? One of the things that's helpful about looking at the people through a geographical lens is to remind ourselves that it's not just what he said, but where he said it. And so there are some places where Schoolcraft is not at all impressed with the people that he encounters. And there are some other places where he is very positive about the people. And thankful. And thankful. The three families that he interacts with that are in the backcountry are the Roberts family, the Wells family, and the Holton Fisher families. Roberts and Holton Fisher are in Missouri. Wells is just over the state line into Arkansas. These backcountry families, Schoolcraft is very judgmental of, with good reason for the Wells family, because they don't treat him fairly well. Henry and Levi needed provisions to continue their journey. In addition to food and bullets, they needed new shoes for their sore feet. Henry explained, Our shoes were literally cut to pieces by the stony region we had crossed, and we had purchased a deerskin for the purpose of making ourselves a pair of moccasins apiece. They bought corn, wild honey, lead, and deerskin from Mr. Wells at what Henry described as very liberal, if not exorbitant, prices. Let's talk briefly about Wells and company. This is a group that kind of see him as complete greenhorns, and they don't have 
food. They don't have gunshot. They don't have proper shoes that have been all ripped up through the walk. But they have a little money, and so they, uh, they take advantage of that. The Wells family does take advantage of him, and that's one of the differences in the response that he gets across this landscape. In some places, people see these guys with money who are desperate and have no clue and decide to take advantage of them. In other cases, the settlers decide, I'm going to let these guys go into my smokehouse and take what they need. Henry and Levi planned to spend the first day of December pounding their newly purchased corn into meal, stitching their deerskin into new moccasins, molding bullets from lead, and otherwise preparing their provisions and resting their bodies for the journey ahead. Mr. Wells and his sons had other ideas. As I tried to trace who the Wells family was, I had some trouble. For one thing, Wells is a fairly common name. But one of the possibilities is a Wells family that actually lived in Missouri near St. Louis. And it's possible that this cabin on Bennett's Bayou in Arkansas was really just a hunting cabin. Probably the Wells family was there on a hunting trip. They were there temporarily to go hunting. This was their purpose. Again, they had things to do. These two young guys who have no clue, are lost. And all the time in the world. And all the time in the world. You can imagine anybody thinking, now these guys could very easily become hangers-on. These guys could end up sticking around a while. We've given them a night in our cabin. We've fed them. We've sold them some goods. But we're here to hunt. We have something to do. And we can't hold these guys' hands. As the Wells brothers and, and family are making their way back to the camp to guide Henry and Levi back to their supplies and horse. Henry and Levi are tired. They can't keep up. Their feet are sore. And so they're making the journey take longer. The Wells family had promised Henry and Levi that they would hunt a deer for them so they would have some food. They had no luck. They found a couple of turkeys that they ate for for dinner and breakfast the next morning and essentially came to a point where they said, okay, see you guys later. From their generosity, we had received nothing. They had neglected to fulfill one of the most essential engagements and departed without even an apology for it. Their manner and conversation were altogether rough and obscene and their conduct such as to make us every moment feel that we were in their power. Nothing could more easily correspond with the ideas we had formed of a reception among the right hunters and the conduct we had experienced from these men. Their avarice, their insensibility to our wants, not to call them sufferings, and their flagrant violations of engagements had served to sink them in our estimation to a very low standard. For, deprived of its generosity, its open frankness and hospitality. There is nothing in the hunter character left to admire. Wow, that's pretty intense. It is. One of the issues for schoolcraft is a common perception that there's a difference on this spectrum of civilization to savagery. Hunters and farmers are also placed on this spectrum by men like schoolcraft. And so there was a bit of a disdain for hunters. There's a belief that hunters aren't really established anywhere. They live in a way that seems a bit too close to the savages. They don't really settle down. And so some of this is a stereotype and a prejudice that schoolcraft holds that hunters are questionable in their character. Mm -hmm. They move westward through the Ozarks, and here they do meet Mr. McGarrow. Now, he is a genuinely decent, helpful, and uh, he's frightened for their safety and and really helps them at two places in this journey because they circle around to find him. Do you see through eagle's eyes? 
Mr. McGarra proved to be generous not only with geographical information, but also with supplies. Now there are bridges on this timberland bed, ground me down, whoa. I've been calling on the moon to turn me around. The following morning, as Henry and Levi prepared for their journey upstream toward the Sugarloaf Prairie settlement, Mr. McGarra took Henry to his smokehouse, gave him a knife, and told him to go in and cut what he wanted. Whoa, hold steady, old stranger, listen to the wind we found. When you hold up the broken cup, I'll swing down. And I'll swing down. And I'll swing down. Henry entered the smokehouse and found it. Well filled with dried buffalo beef and bear's meat, both smoked and fresh. McGarra also refused payment for the food and lodging he provided the men the evening prior, and agreed that Henry and Levi could leave their horse and some of their baggage at the McGarra house until they returned. In December, they're kind of hanging around Beaver Creek, Missouri. They've made it that far. It's freezing. Late December weather caused the creek to freeze. Henry and Levi took advantage of the frozen sheet covering the creek to cross it and investigate the limestone bluff. The water was remarkably pure, Henry noted. And the ice, too, is so clear that in walking across, it appears as if we were walking on a pane of glass, reflecting every inequality of bottom, pebble, etc. And with as much accuracy in this depth, as if covered by a pane of glass in a merchant's case. It's beautifully written. He comes up against a kind of religious difference, too. What does he find, just in terms of his notion of religion, and then what what he's seeing? One of the issues that people from cities and so forth who attended a congregational sort of church, one of the problems that they had with hunters is that they did not attend regular religious services. They were distant from religion. Along with a lack of religion, there were also no schools and no species of learning was cultivated. Henry lamented that the children are wholly ignorant of the knowledge of books and have not learned even the rudiments of their own tongue. Instead of books, the boys were schooled in the survival skills needed for the life in the backcountry. All right, let's kind of move to the White River. They decide that they're going to abandon land and they're going to take a canoe down the White River. So maybe could you kind of set that up for us? Um, It's a nine-day journey. It's interesting that they're equipped neither for backcountry travel over land or for canoe travel, but fortunately, helpful men like Magara let them know that, you know, if you just take a canoe down to Poke Bayou, you can pick up a road that will take you back up to Missouri. This was a much more well-traveled path. It was out of their way in terms of a direct route back to Potosi. But safer. But much safer much more well-traveled, and they would run into people continuously along the White River, where places where they could stay. The day was spent readying provisions. Henry and Levi purchased a canoe from Holton Fisher and loaded it with smoked bear's meat, dried venison, cornbread, salt, and other necessities, such as lead and bullets. Early on the morning of January 9th, 1819, the Holton Fisher families followed Henry and Levi to the riverbank to wish them well and to repeat directions and precautions. The nine-day journey on the White River from the Beaver Creek settlement to Poke Bayou was the most pleasant of the entire tour. Henry remarked, We found ourselves with little exertion of paddles flowing at a rate of three or four miles per hour down one of the most beautiful and enchanting rivers which discharged their waters into the Mississippi. Whoa, 
watched me feast in the full moon's glow Before I turned my sunken face from thee From talk a lot about particular culinary delights no, on this, but in this case he does. Yeah. The beaver tail feast with yeah. Mr. Yoakum. Henry explained that beaver tail was one of the greatest dainties known to the Missouri hunter and was cooked by roasting before the fire when the skin peels off and is eaten simply with salt. He described the taste as mellow and luscious and something intermediate between marrow and a boiled perch. Unfortunately, there was also a slight disagreeable smell of oil. Henry imagined that if the oily smell could be removed or covered by some culinary process, that beaver tail would undoubtedly be received on the table of the epicure with great eclat. And what I loved about that is it really does show the culture that he's coming it from. It does. I can imagine Gordon Ramsay instructing <laughs> a chef on how to make beaver tail taste just right. All right, so the end of the journey, they're moving back to Potosi, Missouri. Could we read just the very last bit? Henry knew he had returned to his version of civilization as he passed through the final settlement before returning to Potosi. He recorded the flourishing status of present-day Farmington, Missouri. Murphy's settlement is already a large and flourishing neighborhood of industrious farmers and presents many well-cultivated fields fenced in a neat and substantial manner, with young apple and peach orchards and framed dwelling houses cupboarded in eastern style. There is also a post office in this settlement, where mail is received once a week, a schoolhouse, and a physician resident. All these indicate the wealth, the industry, and the intelligence of the inhabitants. Henry Schoolcraft finally arrived back at Potosi on February 4, 1819. He observed, The first man I met expressed surprise at seeing me, as he had heard from the hunters I'd been killed by the Indians. But as you've said, this has taken a profound effect on his life because he does several more journeys after this. He even becomes a free and roaming guy who is appointed by presidents to be in charge of Indian affairs. Um, lives in outposts, changes him. Perhaps one of the most important turning points in Schoolcraft's life is at the end of this journey, he runs into uh, James Long, who is about to leave on a government-sponsored expedition into the West. And I describe this as somewhat of a light bulb moment for Schoolcraft. He realizes, ah, the federal government supports this sort of thing. I could actually get paid by the government to engage in this kind of activity, to go exploring or to uh, serve in some kind of scientific role for the government. And now I have done my first difficult expedition. I've proven that I can I've, do it. Yes. Now I have proven that I am capable of going out into the backwoods and maybe I can get dispatched on one of these. Broadcast from the studios of KUAR in Little Rock. You've been listening to Arts and Letters. Thanks for joining us. To check out past episodes, go to artsandlettersradio.org. Leave us a comment there and let us know what you've thought about the program. Thank you to musicians, singers, and songwriters, Joseph and Michael Fuller. Blues boy Jack. And the lark and the loon. Wind up my watch and golden chain. Wind up my watch and golden chain. Wind up my watch and golden chain. But I've got to be on time. I've got to make. For the beautifully inspired music. Thank you to Michael Fuller for the voice work. A special thank you to Joseph Fuller for the kind words and recordings. 
Thank you to Adam Simon of Simon Sound for helping to mix and for mastering the episode. Thank you to Sticky's Rock and Roll Chicken Check for keeping music alive and well in Arkansas. Thank you to BJ and Jimmy Moses for the generous support. Generous funding for Arts and Letters was provided by the Arkansas Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Thank you to geographer and historian Andrew J. Milson for mapping Henry Rowe Schoolcraft's travels and travails through the Arkansas wilderness and, in no small way, rediscovering and recovering him as an Arkansas traveler. For Arts and Letters, I'm Jay Bradley Minnick. Let's heed these words from Henry Rowe Schoolcraft. Nothing could be more remote from the ideas we have attached to domestic comfort, neatness, or conveniency, without allusion to cleanliness, order, and the concomitant train of household attributes, which make up the sum of human felicity in a refined society. And the stories they keep coming back to me. Arts and Letters is a production of Living the Dream Media.